0: Hello everybody and welcome back to another edition of When Movies Were Good hosted by Rachel and my special guest star, my weekly special guest star, one of my closest friends, Matt. Matt, how are you doing tonight? We are recording in person.
1: I know, I can't believe it. All the better to hear you from you, my dear. I
0: know, I know. I Many um, technical glitches over the last four or so months. But as you've uh, known, if you've listened to us, we, uh, we were in a sort of state of lockdown, like a severe lockdown for quite a while. So we're actually able to meet up again in person, although we are still being socially distant. Don't worry, we have a microphone separating us. <laughs> Yeah, so Matt's brought his microphone rig and everything with him, which is actually kind of fun. It's cool. So um, Yeah, I
1: feel like a pro. Yeah,
0: we feel like a pro and, you know, we're loving it. And welcome to our Ingrid Bergman double. And we are doing Casablanca, which is a fantastically famous film, one of the most famous films ever made. But also another film that has sort of captured sort of modern consciousness simply because of the term, uh, the modern terminology that is now associated with that film, and that's um, Gaslight. So these are Ingrid Bergman's films. It's an Ingrid Bergman double, and we will be mentioning her sort of especially throughout the commentary or our discussion. So... um, let's just start with Casablanca first not that it needs any introduction Matt
1: no it's the show that needs no
0: introduction
1: (laughs) I think it's a film that's on many people's desert island list
0: yeah definitely so um, let's just quickly recap Casablanca just for the audience just to get a bit of information out there about the film so it's a 1942 American I guess you could consider it a romantic drama and it is an American wartime drama it was made and released at that time directed by Michael Curtis and, of course, starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman and Paul Henreid. So this film, um, the basic storyline of this film is it focuses on an American exp- expatriate, so Humphrey Bogart, who lives in Casablanca, and he basically has to choose between his love for a woman, which is Ingrid Bergman, and helping her and her husband um, a Czech resistance leader escaped from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue their fight against the Germans. So the the, the film was actually based on an unreleased play called Everybody Comes to Rick, which is um, Humphrey Bogart's character. So it was an unproduced stage play by Murray Burnett, and basically the studio bought the rights to the piece, and then they made the film from there. So it, the screenplay was written by Julius Epstein, Philip Epstein and Howard Koch. It's based of course on the play. The music is by Max Steiner. The cinematography is by Arthur Edelson. Uh, anything else? And it was primarily actually shot all out in Burbank. So they never went anywhere near Casablanca. It was all, but it doesn't matter. It, it looks fantastic. And, Matt, why don't you start the discussion off on this one because I know this is one of your favourites.
1: Yeah, I I love it so much. I've seen it quite a few times. I think the dialogue, it's absolutely perfect. and I think it's very appropriate that so much of the Academy Award attention for this film went towards the writers. Mm -hmm. Yes, both Burgart and Bergman are incredible actors of their generation and, frankly, of all time but the those classic lines they are what brings the film brings the film to life and it really is a very studio picture it's about the creative talent of that um, studio backlot and to indicate just how studio that film is you know that famous scene where they're at the airport it's really misty they have the plane going along do you know why they had all that fog and mist there?
0: I think I was just reading about it today, but I'll get you to explain why.
1: Well, it was basically <laughs> to because the... Fake plan, look like absolute <laughs> crap, and they were just doing their best to hide the evidence.
0: Yes, um, it's it, um, I didn't actually know about that until I was sort of researching the film a bit today before we had a discussion about it. But there is no question that the film is an extraordinarily beautiful film. The co- like even though it's black and white, it manages to have this kind of color palette to it in a way. Now, would you consider this film... It's not a film noir, this film, though, is it?
1: Well, it's funny, actually. I was watching a video on YouTube this morning of uh, one of various sort of um, film critics discussing this movie uh, over breakfast, because that's what I do. I watch uh, movie reviews (laughs) and uh, uh, movie critiques and uh, such things uh, when I eat my meals. (laughs) And uh, he was talking about how because of the sort of twist at the end spoiler alert of when uh, bergard declares that bergman is not going to be uh going with him back to casablanca mm-hmm. but she's going to be on the plane uh, mm-hmm. that it actually in the mind of that critic turns it to a bit more like a uh, film noir okay and now of course this is a always a complex topic because film noir is a sort of a term that's really pushed around a lot but uh, in terms of technical points of view, you could agree with that. In terms of it, it's not so much a romance in the George Cukor style, where you have a lot of artificial uh, light and everything. It has this uh, rosy tint over it. It's all very grit and re- reality of uh, uh, the light and the. And so you have all this, uh Stereotypical elements like the the blind shadows and everything, but in terms of the plot, it, it does certainly have a much uh, of that moral study that we characterize with noir. But it it has, uh, for one thing, the romance of the story dominates, mm-hmm. which in my mind makes it uh, more of a hint of a of a film noir and not a true film noir. Okay, but add to that also is that the film noir was typically about um, searching for the darkness within this is more a film about um, showing how everybody is essentially good.
0: Yes, that's um, it was, I mean some people call it more of a romantic sort of drama as well I suppose for me as a woman, if I'm going to watch um, something like that, I really have to have a buy-in with the male lead. And I'm, I am suppose I'm going to go a bit against the grain here. I'm just not that into Humphrey Bogart. I just, it's just, it's nothing personal against him. Um, I get the attraction. I get, I understand why he was such an attractive force in cinema but well,
1: he, he must have
0: um uh, got
1: Lauren Bacall to like him somehow <laughs> he must have
0: had some uh
1: magnetism yeah I yeah I don't know
0: I I was thinking about Lauren Bacall I'm like yeah I, I I don't know I think she worked with some other guys I probably would have found a bit more attractive but he just is not my type now if it was Ray Melange in this role I think I majorly could have gotten into it. And also, so if we, we go over and we talk about Ingrid Bergman, of course she was Swedish. And she all, I mean... I like her. Yeah, you do? Yeah, she's your... <laughs> she, look, I suppose because when you watch American classic films, you're just not not that, I mean, there's English people bouncing around in them and, you know, we've got Claude Rains in this film and, you know, there's English people bouncing around and, you know, we had Marlena Dietrich and things like that. So... Um, you do get European people, but I just think I always found Ingrid Bergman's accent quite harsh in comparison to her American counterparts, and I don't know whether that always gave me a little bit of a, oh, it's Ingrid Bergman. Okay, you know what I mean? She just has a bit of a jarring voice to me. So oh, I don't mean to be negative at all, but it's just, I, I always keep thinking I probably might have liked the film if there were two different leads, and I know that is absolutely sacrilege, but... Oof. controversial i know i always have to go against the grain though you know me i didn't not like the film i just loved the look of the film like that whole thing at the airport at the end and he's looking at you kid i didn't actually realize that that piece of dialogue he's looking at you kid was actually one of his bogeys lines and he actually said that to ingrid bergman because he was playing poker with her on the set and teaching her poker yeah and he said that to her like if she got a good hand or something or he's looking at you kid you know or it's your turn to go or something so that's where that line came from and then they just kept it they put it into the script but it was never in the original screenplay
1: well a story i love about the uh, another famous line ran up the usual suspects is yeah. that the two twin brothers who were writing uh, much of the screenplay yeah were just on a road trip uh, somewhere and uh it just spontaneously came to them apparently when they were driving through the woods somewhere
0: oh okay yeah i just um i think I, I i think as i go on and watch more i think there's going to be other humphrey bogart films that i like more and i think as i go on and watch more of ingrid bergman and of course i will i think there's just going to be films i think they needed to have a particular kind of chemistry i was looking for and even though everyone loves their chemistry in this film it just wasn't necessarily getting me there
1: one well, i suppose it uh, connects with different people in different ways yes. because i i uh, can sort of uh, uh feel a great connection with those two what i was thinking about on um, just today was the um the laszlo who bergman is allegedly supposed to be um this in this special relationship i find actually there to be very um Little chemistry with her her latter husband with her latter yes, husband yeah that's true which yeah to the construction of the storyline makes sense because you want to be sympathetic to Rick's character yes you want you want them to end up end up together yes uh, Lazlo is just too um, uh, he he's too devoted to, to his role in history.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, just looking through... So, of course, Ingrid Bergman was, is Swedish and she was born in Stockholm in 1915 uh, and started acting over there uh, in Swedish and German films. And then she obviously... You know how Matt and I just love how people can immigrate over to classic Hollywood and start working in films. Um, you know, she, she did Spellbound and Notorious with Alfred Hitchcock. I actually wouldn't mind seeing Joan of Arc with her 1948 i haven't actually ever seen that
1: that's part of my very large uh to watch dvd collection i buy way more than i time <laughs> to watch
0: we might have to make that a big um pair that film up with another big historical sort of film at some point yeah. so i would really and look she had a very varied uh career and worked consistently right up until she passed away unfortunately and she wasn't old when she passed away she was 67 in no, 1982 She had
1: breast cancer yeah or she something. did
0: yeah, yeah she she did and uh i have nothing but respect for her at all but i think sometimes i always sort of it's just sometimes her accent and i suppose they can pretty much write her into any film and explain why she would have the accent but sometimes i feel like maybe maybe an american actress could have done that or an english actress yeah. could have done that a little bit better but it's just a personal thing it's nothing big i suppose
1: deal. um when you're talking about a story that's set in a part of africa where there's a lot of refugees chasing away from the war in europe and they actually met in paris so yes. you you'll have a story yeah. about two refugees going to one country and then refuging to another country. Yeah, so I think it was. It kind of makes yeah, more sense that you yeah. have a, a clash of, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, actually, I cultures. think they did reference that in the script. That yeah, how they met up and everything. And yeah. I also um, forgot that she, that Ingrid Bergman, that is, was married to Roberto Rossellini, and of course Isabella Rossellini is their daughter. So that's all yeah. coming back to me now.
1: It was, um, it was a bit of a scandal at the time. I think I, uh, I can't remember if one of them was in wedlock or something at the time. Or uh,
0: it probably. I know yeah. that she was married beforehand and yeah you're probably right because as most of these you know relationships are there's sort of a bit of a doubling up on when the person was married and divorced etc but she definitely you know she was a very brave person to come over and make her way to Los Angeles and a very very beautiful woman so I love just the whole concept of Casablanca I love the look of the film the light and shade of it I love of course the music in the film as you <laughs> Am I going to start <laughs> singing? <laughs> <laughs> Play it again, Sam. I mean, it is a bit schlocky and it's a bit over the top, but it is. And it's, look, it's for those people out there who haven't seen it, you do need to see it. You just need to see it for yourself.
1: Yeah, it's a, an incredible power, beautiful visuals. But what's fascinating is that it's actually nobody involved in the production. Um, expected it to be as great a hit as it was. That's right. and it seems to be this unwritten rule that for a story, to, most of the time, for a story to be really successful, it seems that to require that nobody expects anything of it when it's made. Because like, this is a time when Hollywood functioned like a factory. They produced so many hundreds of films a year, and uh, to most of those involved, it was just uh, another film. Uh, all those uh, classic lines are were rushed out and uh and like the two writers Epstein and uh I'm sorry I forgot his twin's name but um like they uh I don't know if they got their way by the studio this time but they were notorious with the producers for fighting over work hours and when they finally got their way just because they were that good um they mm-hmm. were just working from home for a couple hours a day and the rest of the time <laughs> listening to ball games on the radio and hearing tennis dream life so they they were julius just julius
0: and philip epstein yeah so they yeah. were just
1: just these two uh lucky blokes that could just churn out a masterpiece <laughs> words um uh, uh by by accident but even uh but even like bergman she was uh, not that not that she had an issue with the film but just that she she was um suffered from this art, artist's curse of only wanting to be involved in masterpieces mm-hmm. and she had uh, almost brushed aside what she was doing at the time when making Casablanca in this mind, because at that time her whole mind was set towards uh, the making of the film for whom the bell tolls, tolls. Yep. based on one of her Hemingway stories and so she was uh, really excited about that project and yet uh, what she regarded as probably just um uh part of her contractual obligation uh was what so many people came to know her for
0: mm. yeah no she's she, yeah I, I had read that about her as well and that she was very determined with the sort of uh pieces and the sort of roles that she did take so if we jump over to the next ingrid bergman film that we're going to discuss but i mean like matt and i were saying we could literally devote about five hours to casablanca and not even touch the tip of everything involved in that film oh, no. and there's probably many other podcasters out there who have very long pieces on it but as i said, as we've always said we just like to discuss the things that we liked about the film or we found interesting so i think that's that's kind of what our contribution is just what we enjoyed or didn't enjoy or um, but I know this is one of Matt's. Is there anything else you wanted to say to wrap this little section up before we go on to Gaslight?
1: Not without uh, probably exhausting a lot of people.
0: <laughs> Maybe another time, yes. So so thanks. For, that one was Casablanca. So let's just jump uh, two years later. Of course, Ingrid's got herself into another fine mess, as they say. So Gaslight is a 1944 American. So this one's a psychological thriller. Um, And it's adapted from Patrick Hamilton's play Gaslight, which only came out six years before in 1938. So the basic premise about so this was the second version of Gaslight that they made. They did a 1940 English film about a woman whose husband slowly manipulates her into believing she's going insane. And the film was, uh, like Casablanca, the film was nominated for several Academy Awards, um, Best Picture Actor, Screenplay, and of course, she won Best Actress. And they also won Production Design, which I did love the production design of this film. It was fantastic. And also in Casablanca as well. So um, let's get into this. So this one was directed by George Cukor, of course, starring Ingrid Bergman, along with Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, who I do like. And one of the loves of your life, an 18-year-old Angela Lansbury. (laughs) Oh, the (laughs) 80s, we miss (laughs) it. Oh, my gosh. Um, And she actually was nominated for an Oscar in her own right for this, and, you know, considering it was her screen debut... Uh, so this film did have a larger scale and a larger budget than the 1940 version of Gaslight. Now, I would like to see that. And I was intending to try and watch it before we, uh, before we start, before we podcasted today, but I just didn't get a chance, but I will. Um, so what else can we say about this film here before we get into discussing it? Um, just having a look here quickly, um... We'll move into the story first, I think. So Matt, what were your feelings on Gaslight?
1: Well, I do love me a good mystery story mm-hmm. and I thought it was I, I admittedly the hearing the just reading the plot line it didn't speak to me as much, uh, but uh, I have wanted to see the show for years just because I was curious uh, what uh, what uh, Mrs. Fletcher was like uh, when she was young, the uh, yeah. Lansbury.
0: <laughs> oh, her accent in this was like... Oh, I've never heard her speak in that, that Cockney sort of English accent before. Yeah,
1: and yet now, like, uh, when she's been in America for almost 80 years, she's almost taken on a bit of a southern drawl. <laughs> and and she's still um uh, going. She'd probably still be uh, working if it weren't for COVID at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say... But she's one of those people, she's a bit like that Betty White mould, like... If you're enjoying what you're doing and you're getting work, it just gives you that vitality for life. Exactly. And I think the worst thing any kind of performer can do, even if they're not getting roles, is just to give up. There's always a community theatre company somewhere. There's always a local show to go in. I'm sure they'd love to have some of these people. And there's no excuse to not keep going unless you physically can't, you know.
1: So- well, even if you physically can't, you could surely, I don't know, Make your own stop animation show. To yeah, I
0: just don't, I I never understand if an actor once who has had success in their career um, has had success, and all of a sudden the roles dry up. I mean, there's just so many smaller options to keep you acting. That someone might see you and get you into a bigger production again. Whether that's you know a local theatre company to Broadway, or a student film to a larger film, or I just, for the life of me, don't understand it. So I guess that's not a problem Ingrid Bergman has. She always consistently worked right up until sort of, you know, well into the 70s.
1: On the other spectrum, though, you do have some, that like Sean Conway, who can have a healthy mentality of knowing sort of when the right time it is to
0: yes. retire. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's uh, yeah, I mean, it's not there trying to cling on to... Yeah,
0: I think if you're in good health and everything, like Angela Lansbury and Betty White have been right well through their 80s, um, I think Betty White has obviously slowed down now. She comes up to 100, I think she is. But um, but they know, yeah, you're right. You need to know when to call it quits as well. But yeah. some people just pull the pin far too early and they're sitting around at home doing nothing. So. In
1: Connery's case, I think he just cared more about his golf swing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and RIP to Sean Connery as well, of course. Yes, fail. Um, so this film for me, <laughs> here we go again, Um, Sometimes something can be overhyped, I suppose because everyone uses that term gaslight now, or you're being gaslit. I mean, I think a lot of younger people use it and they don't quite know actually where it comes from, but it does come from this film. So of course the reference to gaslighting in this film has to do with the gas lights in the film going up and down, yeah. and she's oh what's going on here sort of thing. So it is a it is a literal reference to something that's happening in the film because it, remember it's I guess this is the Ed, is this the Edwardian era is it the eighteen hundreds like eighteen eighty ninety
1: thereabouts they had they they had um gas lights until as late as the nineteen twenties I think but uh, considering the general wealth of the area they're working in, I'd say probably up to up to just before World War One would be inappropriate okay. timing.
0: Okay, because yeah. Because
1: most of those areas would have gone to electricity by the end of World War One.
0: Right, okay. So there is an actual reason that it is it is called because, you know, when the gas, gas lights are flickering, she thinks she's imagining it. It has to do with the psychological uh, manipulation. So I want to talk about the lead male role in this film and this is what my... <laughs> <laughs> this is what my problem was. I just found... And again, nothing personal against Charles Boyer and I don't know whether it's the whole French thing or whatever, but I just found his on-screen persona in this role so annoying. Um,
1: I think that's partly by design though. It
0: is, but I guess, you know, um, you have to love to hate the person and in that, you know, someone playing a villain like this... I just didn't buy the nice parts of his character. I just thought, God, how can she not see through this? The guy's so annoying. And that's why I wanted to compare it to the first Gaslight, because I wanted to see what the male lead was like in that film. And I just, I just, I don't know, maybe somebody else in the film would have worked more for me. So I thought Ingrid was great. It got a bit screamy towards the end, but I guess what she was going through, that's more than fair enough. But, um... And again, I think for me, also the film was 20 minutes too long. So (laughs) I just thought they could have condensed it down a little bit with some of these episodes that she was having. And I think the other issue with this film, and I think the play in the first version of the film are a bit different, is Joseph Cotton's character. It was just sort of like, so the setup in the film is Joseph Cotton's character Was he someone that knew her mother or was a fan of her mother?
1: He was a fan of her aunt who was the opera singer. Opera
0: singer, right. So Ingrid Bergman's character was an opera singer in this and gave it up for Charles Boyer's character and then, you know. So there's this sort of plot that he's trying, married her to be able to go into the house to search for jewellery that he wants to steal. And I I don't know. That's not enough for me.
1: Well, it's the same way. How there's, this also there's this very tentative connection of Joseph Cotton with yes. her own aunt, and that it's just enough that I, like, I respect the cleverness of tying in the story of of the of the glove, yeah, and how that introduced him to her aunt. But uh, it seems strange that this woman going through an emotional disparity and uh, not trusting anyone coming inside the house mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. is won over. Uh, because he has her aunt's glove.
0: Yes, but then, yes, but it. you
1: forgive yes. it. But it's, but it's kind of like uh, when you're watching the James Cameron Titanic, and you uh, forgive them for acting rather irrationally below deck to the uh, to the iceberg coming because they don't know it's up, up, what's up above, and so the tension and all the. So forgive my unnecessarily complicated rambling just then but basically yeah the drama of the story at that time uh, makes you forgiving of that little plot floor because you enjoy that release the connection yeah. between the two new characters that was a much more common sense simple way to describe it
0: yeah i think in the first from what i was reading in the play and in the first version the joseph cotton character was a police officer and he was investigating uh issues to do with this woman and and what was happening with her. And that's why he was coming into it from a law enforcement perspective. And I, I don't know, I personally probably would have enjoyed that more. I think also if what I, how I would have done it, if I was doing the script, I probably would have changed it that her aunt or something like that had destroyed his career or something when he was a young man and then he was hell-bent on revenge and this was one of the ways he well, I would have preferred something like that. But then again, that's just me.
1: Yeah, it's the way he has that weird reaction to the letter. You think it could be a bit more sinister. I mean, the implication seems to be that he's some sort of Italian prince. Prince, yeah. And uh, that he's lost the... Because I'm thinking if you, they meant so much to you that way, uh, why didn't you just not get them in the first place? It kind of has the tying-ins of some of those uh, stereotypical Sherlock Holmes stories, like the the case of the blue shoe polish yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, they did
0: make a case for everything in the script. I, you know, I mean, um, I just... It just wasn't enough for me. I was like, oh, you know, and because I found his on-screen persona really, there wasn't enough. The, the when he was being lovey with her, and you know, the whole let's, you know, it just, it just wasn't working for me. I, it just there was something missing there. Now, if it had been Ray or something, I'm, I'm joking. But I think if well, every, every movie, every story,
1: yeah, Ray and live, wouldn't it?
0: I think if um. I know, but I guess for me, coming at it from a woman's perspective, I suppose for the male lead in the film, I just have to have a bit more buy-in with them. And in these two films, I just didn't have enough buy-in with both Bogie and with Charles. And it's not, you know, I'm determined to see more films with both of them in it. It's not going to stop me, but just if we're getting to sort of like romance and being a husband and all that sort of stuff, I have to feel a bit more of a connection there. And I think that's probably why these films didn't work for me, as well as say maybe, Matt, you're coming at it just from a different point of view. So what did you ultimately think of Gaslight?
1: I love the style of it. Yeah, this, beautiful film. Uh, I think uh, this is, it shows a few of the weaknesses of um, plotting, which was why and um, I, I keep talking about him. This is why Hitchcock, uh, he, admittedly himself, uh, didn't like to go for the... Agatha Christie, who done a type plot, too much mm. he preferred thrillers because this has a lot of the elements of a story of one of those early 20th century detective novels where it's uh, in a literary form, it could be more forgiving about this uh, plot twist at the end, based on a like the hidden jewel, yeah, uh, which uh, guides the actions of the characters, but that what. What Hitchcock called a MacGuffin, the sort of the inanimate or, or um, the metaphorical object that uh, is of obsession to the characters, the relationship to that uh, to that object that they are chasing uh, is not really established clear enough because we know from the beginning that. Bergman's husband is this sleazy character. Yeah. But we can't really tell, <laughs> quite tell why.
0: Yes. So yeah.
1: it does a very good job at making us not like him.
0: Yes, and you know it, it did. It definitely set out to do, but I think. um
1: But the the mm, motivation mm, is to be set out a lot yeah, better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I um I'm actually j- I'm just really curious to see the 1940 film. I think it just runs a bit shorter. It might be a little bit tighter. And I think that's, you know me, that's what I'm looking for. So, but just to finish off here, someone was actually sort of capped a bit of a screenshot here in regards to Gaslight and some other films of the era that they were comparing it to. So it's, you know, it is a thriller, what they call soaked in paranoia, which is definitely true. So they're comparing it to a couple of Hitchcock's other works like The Lodger and Hanover Square, which I ha- unfortunately haven't seen yet because they're both set in the Edwardian age.
1: But also Shadow of a Doubt, which also had Joseph Cotton. And it's almost like a opposition of roles for Cotton because uh, everybody would have remembered him at that time from Shadow of a Doubt. Mm. And instead of being now the sleazy, uh, the, the, the sleazy uh, love object of the heroine um he's now the detective in the
0: background yeah because they they said that um this film cycle of the 40s um this reviewer or film critic describes it as the don't trust your husband period so it began with a couple of hitchcock's films so we had rebecca suspicion and shadow of a doubt which matt just mentioned and then continued with gaslight and jane Eyre. Then Notorious, The Spiral Staircase, which I ha- I haven't seen that I want to see. Me the, the Two seen. Mrs. Carrolls and Sorry Wrong Number. That's the one with Barbara Stanwyck in it, I think. And Sleep My Love. So all of these films. They're say, this film critic was arguing that they use the noir visual vocabulary and share the same premise and narrative structure. Would you agree with that or?
1: It's definitely the beginnings of of heading in that direction. The fact that we're talking about a turn of the century storyline that has uh, two very European uh, people moving into the English-speaking world of London mm. does actually uh, uh, indicate the how film noir and a lot of the cultural, uh, the, a lot of the cultural missions of the early 20th century were were steeped in this. Uh, sudden migration of place and you're seeing different worlds in very different uh, lights so that uh, like Ber- Bergman has the this very horror vision of uh, London and the story within, yes where while well, her husband uh, talks about the the, sort of the homely coziness uh, side of the court Well, they
0: did go to the Tower of London too in the film. I, uh, that was an interesting scene there. But basically this uh, film critic finishes off with the the basic premise and narrative structure of all these films is, you know, the life of the rich sheltered woman is threatened by an older, deranged man, often her husband. and all of them, the house usually, which is true, it's a symbol of what they become trapped in and... Uh, it's sort of like sheltered security but it becomes a trap of their terror and that's a really good way of putting it i think yeah so um yeah i'm grateful and glad to have seen both films i just love the beauty of both of these films i think my main issue is probably the running time of both of them i just go for shorter films that are a little bit compact but i don't I don't mind at home i can pause it if i need yeah. to use
1: the bathroom if i need to use the
0: bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me though i've always been you know if I see that ninety minute running time I love it i'm I'm really in for that, but anything over a hundred minutes i I just like films to kind of have their little area that they concentrate on, but some films like to have a bit more of a sweeping story that's fine uh so yeah these were these were definitely good i really look forward to seeing actually all the actors who participated in these films and the directors seeing a lot more of their work a lot more definitely. so um Just before we go, of course, we will introduce the next two films that we will be doing. We are doing a Sean Connery RIP special. Just wanted to, you know, I mean, Sean Connery was just one of the icons out there and he will be um, dearly missed and hopefully he's resting in peace now. So we have to choose some movies from the era that we discuss movies of. So we've chosen, or Matt actually chose these films, which I'm looking forward to seeing. They're both in the late 50s. So Another Time, Another Place, and that was uh, Sean Connery and Lana Turner. And then we've got his Walt Disney film that he made in 1959, which is Darby O'Gill and The Little People, and that seems like a lot of fun, so I'll be looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, and that's the good thing when you have – a concentrated theme like us, it means you have to be creative to work uh, towards its aims. And in the case of Sean Connery, we tend to associate him with the 60s pop culture and, and moving onwards, or even those that know a bit more about him, they may think of him mostly as this uh, character TV actor from a few uh, dramas that he was starting to get into before he made his big break. But he was part of that that older generation uh, beginning in the 50s because people forget that he wasn't like a, a young 18-year-old when he did James Bond. He was in his early 30s. So yes. he had a bit of a a career beforehand, although it wasn't just starting. And yes. to connect him more less with the gadget-driven, uh, high, high-colour, consumeristic type uh, person we think of with the early Bond films and moving more to his... Uh, more macho kill roles in the yeah. 70s and 80s uh, to have this uh, much more hu- humble finding your yourself sort of english uh, well scottish marlon brando type person yeah
0: I don't, i'm actually looking i i'll be honest with you i haven't i've seen some of several of his 80s films and 90s films that he's done uh, but i you know i've seen it i think i've seen one of his bond films but i haven't really seen much of his early work so this will be a good opportunity to just start off and dip the toe in and have a look at some of his earlier work and pay a bit of homage to him so once again matt thanks for joining me in person Oh, my the, This week. I really appreciate you bringing your microphone rig and everything. It's been a lot of fun. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. So, um, of course, Matt, will just run you through where you can find us on social media.
1: Yep. So, we are on Instagram at When Movies Were Good. The same on Facebook and on Twitter. We release episodes twice a week. So, in case you lose track of your watches, please... Hit the thumbs up, tap subscribe and the bell notification and you will just simply get notified automatically when we appear.
0: So in the meantime, everyone, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.